My name's Larry, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, everybody. Yeah. Last drink I've had to the, up to the moment was uh, November 11th of 1975. That's approximately 25 years, uh, three months, and um, and 20 days and a couple of minutes, as far as I can just kind of off the top of my head. Not that it's, it's burning there, but... Uh, Because I have a sobriety date, and a sobriety date that hasn't changed, a lot of things in my life, uh, the last 25 years, have come together, which allows us the opportunity to come here and be with you and share and all that. So that's uh, many, many blessings from that. And I'll try to mention some of those as we go this morning. First, I'd like to uh, obviously do, do the thank you part, an appreciation to having an invitation to come down here and share with you. Uh, to me, that's an honor, whether it be here at at a conference like this or to be at a, uh, a local group at home, uh, to me it's the same thing. You have a chance to share yourself with others. I've been to many meetings that people shared themselves with me and it helped me at the time depending on how well I paid attention. And so it's just my turn, that's all. And then somebody else will have a turn and somebody else will have a turn and, and that's just the way that, that seems to work. But I thank uh, uh, Judy for inviting uh, for whatever her reasons were, and calling, and uh, and all the organization and uh, and um, uh, planning, and everything just was uh, laid out for me. All I had to do was execute it, and it worked out nicely. And of course, uh, Chuck and Betty for their hospitality at the house. Isn't it amazing? As sober people today, you can knock on a stranger's house, they welcome you in, and turn over their whole household to you, and uh, and they got clean sheets, and they got a bed, and they're willing to feed you and your coffee, and uh, and you start up a new friendship. Okay, and uh, that's just uh, that's just the way that is with our program. And then we had the opportunity to uh, to go out and have a uh, a house party last night. And uh, so Doug and Jean had made their house available and the food and those that came in and and shared it. Uh, it was a delightful evening, a chance to get to visit and know each other, a, new, a whole new set of friends. And then to come down here this morning and uh, I walk in the door and I have a friend here, Mick, who uh, moved down to your uh, Dayton area, got his first sobriety up in our Cleveland area. And the next thing I know, there are about seven of them over here. Uh, they're supposed to be at the Saturday morning Strongsville group. It meets at 10 o'clock, and they're not going to make it, okay, because <laughs> they came down here. And so they're having their own special weekend, and what a, what a joy to, to walk in and uh, not only to see them but, and then meet some of the other folks. And it's, uh, it's, it's such an honor. And I always got to kind of get a kick at how they have to write me up. They, uh, they put down, Larry V is speaking. My last name's Van Dusen, and my initials are VD, and they never use that. And so I put that right there, see, because I'm just as proud of my last name as anybody else. And, but, you know, we have nicknames, and that was one of mine when I was a kid. You know, I want you to meet my friend VD. I had people move away from me. They, they stick out your hand, and they pull back. And uh, I learned to live with, uh, you know, labels a long, long time ago. And so, uh, what a delight to be here with you this morning. Uh, my world has been a world of athletics uh, for uh, most of my life. And I've been in the college football business for a long time. And oftentimes, I, I use uh, terms and, and situations in athletics to explain what's taking place today in my life. Because it makes sense to me. Not that it makes sense to others, but it makes sense to me. And I look at a gathering like this on a Saturday morning, and we come in here, and we're, we're the, uh, uh, the, uh, the start of the game right here. Say, everybody isn't here yet. But you know, when our game starts, not, every, not everybody's in the stadium at the same time either. 
And so those that get here at 9.30, you get here at the beginning. you got the best parking. You come in here. You get the fresh coffee. And you come in. You can pick your seats. you got your own seats yet. And you can get 50-yard line seats. You can get 40-yard line seats, 30-yard line, wherever you want to go. And, uh, and uh, you know, to me, that's, that's the special people. Because like in a pregame warm-up, we send the specialists out. And the specialists and skilled people go out and they do their kicking and their throwing and their passing. And, uh, and that's how this thing gets started. you got to start it someplace. And so today, this is our start. And I thought of a, a, a other uh, athletic combinations. If this was a boxing match, this would be the prelim. We get those three rounders in there, get a couple of people, get that thing started, get the enthusiasm going, build, 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 and they finally have the, you know, the main event. And if this was a track meet, I'd be like that first runner coming out on that relay team. My job is to get this thing started, get out of those blocks, get going, get around those turns, come in with as big a lead as I can, and then hand it off smoothly to the next person. So they can do the same thing so we keep that race of sobriety going for the day. So if I looked at this like a baseball situation, I happen to be the leadoff hitter. And, you know, we have the Cleveland Indians. You've got the Cincinnati Reds in here. And, uh, you know, that leadoff man's important because the idea for a leadoff man is get on base. Now, there's a lot of ways of getting on base. You can get a hit and get on base, but you might get on base by an error. I might be here as an error today. I don't know. Say, uh, <laughs> You might hit me with a pitch or something like that. There's, there's several ways of getting on. But the idea is to get it started, get after it, and then let the momentum carry for the rest of the day. And some people will come, and some people will go, and some people will be for the whole day. This is game day today, and you can have the whole package if you want. If you just want some of it, it's available. Make the most of it, of what, you know, uh, of what's taking place at the time. I have found that I have never been late to a meeting in 20 plus, 5 plus years. Some meetings, however, have started before I got there. <laughs> but I never, I never intentionally, you know, uh, cut corners to get to be there late. And sometimes I've had to leave early because I've got work to do or something else. It was real simple in my mind. I'd rather have a half a pie than no pie. Now look at me. You know that that's true. See, I, <laughs> I had two bowls of chili last night. I didn't have one bowl. I would have had a third, but that might have been impolite. So I had something else. So it's, uh, I mean, that, that's just my understanding. And I can have as much sobriety as I want. You know, I was a glutton for drunkenness. I was a drunken bum. I was uh, a, a staggering, slurring, falling down, pants wetting, puking drunk. Now, that is a condition I was in many, many times. And I don't try to paint a, a, a pretty picture of that. I'm not looking for nice terms, but it was for ugly stuff. And I want to remember that. Whether anybody else does or not, I'll guarantee you my ex-wife and the neighbors and other people remember those things. Say, but, but that's the way I am. I try to keep it real clear. You know, I, am a, I said I was alcoholic. And some people have trouble with that word. Well, I can say I was a dry drunk. I'm a sober lush. I have, uh, I'm powerless over alcohol. I have the disease of alcoholism. I'm addicted to the liquid drug alcohol. I was a problem drinker. I don't care what the term is. All I know is I found out what was wrong, who was wrong, and what to do about it. And I've been trying to do what to do about it ever since. And I've been sober in that period of time. And I was a, a glutton for punishment as a drunk. And if I'll use that same kind of energy as a sober person, my life will be better. And if I go on the road or go someplace, and we talked a little bit about that last night, if I was going into Vegas, if I was coming into Dayton, if I was going, and I did that one time in Dayton, I'm going to know where the hot spots are, where the action is, what's going on tonight. And I'll guarantee you my Friday night drinking in Dayton would have been different than my Friday night last night. 
say. I would have ended up in different places with different people and uh, maybe woke up the next day not even remember what it was that I did. Because I had a lot of those things. And so I just try to use the same energy as a, uh, as a sober person as I use as a drunk. And all I know is that my life has is, is, been an adventure. It's been exciting. It's had high times. It's had sad times. And I'll tell you something. It is not dull. It is not dull. I was an active drunk. I'm an active sober person. And I just totally and completely believe in what we have here. I was given a gift of sobriety. I was given it. I did not earn it. And I was brought to you and brought to this program. And because of that, other things have built back into my life. And that wasn't because I was so special or like a friend of mine said, Larry, you've always been lucky. I'll tell you something. When I was at my bottom, I wasn't on a lucky streak. That was not good times. And, uh, and that's just the way I look at it. And I believe in the basic fundamentals. I believe in having a sobriety date. I believe in having a home group. Maria Men's in my home group. It's on my card. And I have a, a sponsor. I see him every week. I want my sponsor to, one, be able to recognize me. I want my sponsor to have an idea when he looks in my eyes what he sees. And I want him to be able to, you know, uh, to smell me, to touch me, to talk to me. And uh, I know where he lives. I know what his telephone number is. I know his wife. I know his kids. He knows mine. And I believe in, in keeping that contact at least once a week. Now, my sponsor today is about 79, got uh, 49 years of recovery. He's got a lot of uh, experience. And, and his a little bit limited, but I'm not. So I take that responsibility. And the guys that I sponsor do some of those kinds of things too. Not all of them, but some of them. I just know that that works for me. And when I have difficulties, I have a person in my life that has a confidentiality that I can go to, and he's going to listen to me, and he'll share back with me exactly what he thinks, and it will go from there. And that's a a commitment I never had in the old days. The last thing I want to do is come to you and tell you some of that ugly stuff that took place. When I look back on my life, I wasn't an alcoholic until after I got sober. I didn't know what one was. I didn't, uh, I didn't recognize alcohol as the problem until after I was sober. That amazes a lot of our family members. I know we got a lot of Alan. We've got a lot of, uh, 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 people here, family groups and Alan on in combination. We've got some switch hitters in here today. Some can go from the right side, from the left side, and, uh, and we've got, uh, some people that can fill in all those spots for us. We're going to have that today. What a great combination that you put together. What a wonderful recipe for, for the, uh, the, uh, the uh, sobriety cake of today. And so I'm looking forward to being part of that. But I wasn't one of those that identified alcohol as the enemy. I identified a lot of other people as the enemy. I never had a shortage of people to blame. You know, and as long as I can blame you, then I don't have to look at me. And I can look back as a kid, and in my house, my mom and dad, they had rules. I never had problems knowing rules. It was always brought out to me. You know, my parents had rules, my coaches had rules, the teachers had rules, the ministers had rules. Knowing the rules wasn't the problem. However, following the rules sometimes were difficult for me. And when you break the rules, you learn one thing. Don't get caught. I learned that, you know, you try not to get caught because if you get caught, then you got to, you know, you got to apologize, you got to make it up, you get punished, you get all that stuff. And I'd rather not do that. That doesn't mean I didn't want to try to do certain things, but uh, that was just the price of, of learning. That's all. As you grow up, and so drinking in my house was not okay. And uh, and as an athlete, uh, with our coaches, we had training rules. Drinking was not okay. It wasn't until I went off to college. I had a scholarship up at a school in uh, Evanston, Illinois, and I went up there on a scholarship to play football. And uh, and you were supposed to go to school also. 
And uh, I had a little trouble with that academic stuff. I still do. I've been in colleges ever since, but I still have a little trouble with that reading and writing and spelling and things like that. It's been a little problem for me. And, uh, and so college was difficult. But I ran into a couple of guys, ex-service guys, and I was drawn to them, and they took me down into Chicago, and uh, and they uh, went into a bar one time, and old John, he was a Pacific boxing champ and, uh, for the Marines, and said, I'll have a beer. And Lou over here, he's in the Navy, 6'6 six, six and 260, he said, I'll have a beer. And I'm sitting between them. I'm about 18 years old, shaving maybe twice a week, you know, blonde-haired and fair-skinned, and the guy asked me, I said, I have a beer. <laughs> So I got that beer. We're the only three guys in the joint, you know, so it wasn't like I had to show your ID. And uh, and I found that magic, see. And I, anybody that puts that magic down doesn't understand what had just happened. I mean, when I drank that beer, I got as big as Lou and I got as tough as John, see. And I could get cool. And I, and during those days, you know, you'd go out on a Friday night, you hit your peak. You're right at your peak and you're the smoothest and the coolest and the dancing and all that stuff. And the next Saturday morning you wake up a little hungover, a little sick, and you're, and you're not as cool. You're not quite as sharp. And, uh, and I had that, I had it last night. And yet it's not there on Saturday, but I don't want you to know that it's not there, so I've got to act that role out. But when I act it out, it's a phony deal, because if you have to act it, it's not real. And therefore, I know I'm a phony, and the next thing, you know, my inferiorities are in there, and I'm trying to cover it up with the outside and doing all that stuff. And uh, and all I can tell you is my academics, my athletics, and my social life was affected by that drinking, because I was already having blackouts. I've been a volume drinker since I started to drink. And my life was affected in negative ways. And what amazes me is how some of us, for whatever the reason, can stagger forward and, and sometimes even uh, in, uh, improve our lives uh, before we crumble. Alcohol and drugs will let us achieve certain things, and then they'll clip us out there and just take us right on down. And somehow I finished college. And next thing, I was in Kent uh, for a master's degree, and I became a graduate student coach. And, and that was what I always wanted to do. And next thing I had a job, and next time I, uh, next year I had another job, and two years after that I had another job. I was back in that Chicago. I had the best job. I had mid sixties, best job. I had title, respectability. Uh, as our our steps talks about in step three, it starts talking about being the actor, setting the stage, and that's what I see me doing. And then back in that mid sixties, there I had the wife. We had the three kids. We had the first house. We got the car. Later, getting the second car. I got a job. It's got a title. It's respectable. And if you ask me, Larry, how you doing, I could, I could mention all of that. The thing that I wouldn't mention to you, however, is that uh, I got home last night and don't remember how I got home. I had these incidents that took place in my life. And I would wake up in the morning, and you know when you've been out last night, and you can't, uh, as you start to wake up, you're not quite sure where you're at or who you're with or, or what the circumstances are, then what you've got to do is when you start to wake up, you've got to start smelling things. Get odors. Are these homeowners, you feel the sheets. If I'm feeling silk sheets, I'm in trouble because I don't have silk at home. Okay? And, uh, and uh, you know, what's the movement? Are there kids? You know, and you're picking up on that before I can start to open that eye and oh, I'm home. Now i got another problem because i got to figure out how it was I got home. I might have been out with my coworkers last night doing one of our fundraisers or something like that. And I, I kind of, about 10, 30, 11, I just kind of black out. I don't know what happened. And so I don't know how I got home, so how i got to find out. And so I find my wife, and I, you start to read their faces, see? And uh, how are they responding and reacting to you? You Alanines know that. And the game is on, she doesn't know she's playing, see? And, uh, and uh, let's say that she's not angry, so that's tougher, because now i got to get her to tell me how I got home, when I got home, did somebody bring me home, because i got to gather information. 
Because I don't know it, and i got to do that without her knowing I don't know. And uh, and it gets kind of complicated, but, you know, you get, you get used to that kind of stuff that when it happens several times. And now I can go to work, and as I'm going to work, I'm making up stories ready to defend myself against those guys that are going to say, Hey, Larry, last night when you said this and you did that, and, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out what, ahead of time what's going to happen and, uh, and get my story straight and tell, Oh, no, that's not what I said. That's not what I meant. I wouldn't do that. And then they sit there and look at you, and they know that happened. But you're trying to get, get that, uh, see, I'm on guard. And, um, and I don't even call that lying. That's not even denial. That's just not knowing. You just got to use your imagination here, guys. I mean, uh, you got, you, and, and you got to talk fast, and you got to, you know, keep on the move. I found drinking by myself was a whole lot better. That way I didn't have to explain it to anybody, see? So if I didn't get arrested and I didn't lose the car and, uh, or have an accident or a punch, or, you know, I'd get home and nobody saw me, that was a successful night drinking. Had nothing to do how I felt the next day. You know, I'm only 20 some years old. And I'm in trouble with booze and I don't see it. And when I was there at, uh, in that uh, area, uh, I felt that pressure. I couldn't get to that next ladder of that uh, ladder of success. I was stymied. And it seemed like I was having some close calls and some near misses that were my bubble was going to pop. And the next thing, the, the, the people were going to know that. And so uh, uh, what I did was I changed jobs, a little geographical change, then go from one place to another. And, uh, and I didn't realize that's what it was at the time, but I had a guy in Kent offer me a job. I went up there. And I had a new image. I had better props. I had a bigger title. We talked about that. Give me a bigger title and a bigger broom and call me something special. You don't even have to pay me. I just go and work for you, see, because I need that ego, see. And the next thing is uh, I go up there, and within two months, I just make a drunken fool out of myself at a big national convention. And I woke up that next day, and I got props. I'm in that hotel, and, you know, I've come in, I've fallen in that bed, and I've wet myself, and I've wet that bed, and my problem's not that. My problem is I have a roommate that doesn't do that, a regular adult guy. And I don't know about you, when, you, when, when I wet the bed, I don't like other people to know it. And uh, so I've got to, you know, I've got to get uh, out of this. So I, I can get my clothes changed when he's in the shower. But then I've got that wet bed, and you know that that lady's going to come in there that does that uh, room service, and she's going to see my wet bed, and then she's going to go call my boss and tell him that Larry wet the bed, and this in here, my imagination's going, I'm hungover. And so I go down the hall, and uh, what's neat about that is that room service is always there. just have to find them. And they're dashing in one room to fix somebody's room. I'm stealing sheets off that cart. I get on back to my room. I rip those sheets off. And then I got the wet spot up. And you always have to turn the wet spot down. So you got to flip those mattresses. I'm one of the all-time mattress flippers. You know, if they have a contest, I'm, I'm one of the leaders. I, t- I flip that baby flat it out 90 degrees. You don't have to make the bed. Just throw the sheets back, ditch the others. And all I tried to do was get ready. That was just how start of the day for crying out loud. See? I'm already sick and hung over. We haven't even dealt with that yet. But a drink will take care of that. And I had a feeling that my boss might have heard about that evening. And sure enough, we're driving back. And he says, Larry, I heard about the other night. Well, I had about a day to get ready for that. And I said, you, they, you don't have to worry about that. In fact, the fellow was my boss, used to be the head high school football coach in Kettering right here. Uh, dear, dear, lovely friend of mine to this day. And I said, you don't have to worry about that again because I'm not drinking anymore. And the man said something to me that I remember uh, uh, to this moment. He said, I never thought you had a drinking problem because I'd worked for him before. We've been out many times. I never let him see me get like that. 
So he only saw, you know, the surface stuff. And I said to him, uh, when I think about that, I never said to him I had a drinking problem. I said to him I wasn't going to drink anymore. You see, for this alcoholic, that's two different uh, meanings. I didn't look at it as having a problem. What I looked at it was I had to ask other people not to drink, and I was the guy that was supposed to oversee that, and so I decided, well, I won't drink if I have to ask you not to drink. That's the way it should be. I'll set the standard. I gave you my word. I would shake on that. That's, that's a contract. And I did that three and a half years. Larry's way of not drinking. And I didn't go join anything. I never, I, you know, I couldn't spell AA. I wouldn't have known. That was not a factor in my life. It wasn't that I had a problem with alcohol. I just had some stuff messed up. And that was my solution. And so, uh, we were there for three years in 1970, as uh, many of you from Ohio know, the, the killings in the National Guard, real nasty stuff. And uh, I didn't drink through that. Then I went to uh, Wisconsin, and, uh, uh, up there in Madison, Wisconsin. I got hired up there, and, uh, and I went up there, and uh, I lasted six months. I was around people that seemed to me were doing a lot of drinking. Don, did you notice that when you were in Wisconsin, they do a lot of drinking, right? And they drink a lot of brandy. And I was with a group of people that seemed like the, you know, they like to wheel and deal and raise hell and chase and all this stuff. And I don't know about you. I'm the type of person I know today. I can be influenced. See, I can be influenced. I know that. See. I can be sitting at home. And I don't get Playboy Champ. I won't have that in my house. But my wife's up in bed and, I, and I'm having to, you know, got that clicker looking for sports or something. And I, I happen to catch that Playboy channel and I'll have just one of those little openings in there, say. And I'll have somebody in there, you get about half a picture. And somehow my, 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 my stopper, you know, my button gets stopped and just, just for a little look. And then all of a sudden the pattern's coming. You're trying to look in the patterns and, uh, <laughs> and you turn that, that volume up a little bit and all they're doing is breathing. And uh, next thing I know, I'm going upstairs to see if my wife's awake. Okay. <laughs> Honey, you still up? Yeah, I know I can be influenced. Okay? And, uh, and so I'm with this group, and I hear what's going on, and I see what's going on. And I'm sitting at the left guard, a joint outside a, a, an old Green Bay Packer place, and a friend of mine, a, a co-worker's up dancing and sweet-talking, and he left a drink beside me smaller than our cups. I don't remember what the drink was. Three and a half years of not drinking that night, with a drink sitting beside me, not mine, but his. And our book says sometimes we have no defense for the first drink. Never describes what the first drink is. doesn't say it's a bottle of this or a can of that or a jug of this. It just says the first drink. And that night, I reached over, I picked his drink up, and I took a sip. Now, it's important we understand a sip. Uh, people in our rooms understand sips, gulps, chug-a-lugging, and... Uh, and so when I'm sneaking a little bit of your drink, I, and he's in a small glass, I don't get much. And I'm going to tell you what that drink did to me. After three and a half years of not drinking, I was as dry then as I am now, just not as long. All of a sudden, I got thirsty. And I wanted more. But I got the image of the non-drinker. And I'm always worried what I think you think about me. And so I couldn't just order up. So I left that place, went to the uh, beverage store next door, ordered up a bunch of stuff, went out and parked by some curb like you do when you're a teenager, and drank myself into drunkenness and go out and do the X-rated stuff I do. Came home 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, just the same condition I was in New York, as all of a sudden there I am in Madison. Three and a half years had passed. I, I took a taste of a drink, 
and I was drunk that night. And a fellow explained that for me one time in his story. He said that he had something similar after a period of dryness. He took that drink. He said it was like lighting the, the fuse on a time bomb. And it took him about a week to get drunk. And when I heard that, I just thought, I just had a shorter fuse, that's all. I got drunk that night. And you see, I didn't understand about Dr. Silkworth's explanation in the big book until, obviously, I was in treatment and I, and I read that. And I could identify myself because I looked back at that time. And Dr. Silkworth says there's a group of people, not all, that when they take a drink, they get this phenomenon of craving. And then once they get it, they want to have more. And I identified myself as that that type of person. And I'm that type of person to this day. You put, If I put something in my mouth, I have a phenomenal craving. I love to tell a story on myself. Uh, I have a lady that works across the hall from me. And I walk in her office one day, and she had a little basket with some of those uh, little one-bite Tootsie Rolls. It was after Halloween or something like that. And she said, Larry, would you like to have a Tootsie Roll? Certainly. I took a couple. I went into my office. I sat down, unwrapped both of them, put one on the left, one on the right. I'm chewing those Tootsie Rolls, and I watched myself. I watched myself wait for her to leave the office, hoping that she doesn't lock the door. And she went down the hall. I went to my doorway. She turned a corner. I sit in the office, had a handful of Tootsie Rolls back at my desk, unwrapped about five or six of them. I've got three on one side, three on the other. I'm chewing them. You've got to work a Tootsie Roll. The other thing doesn't just melt in there. I'm working that Tootsie Roll. And I had taken and put those wrappers in my waistband basket. I thought, she's going to come in. She's going to see my uh, those wrappers. She's going to know I'm taking her Tootsie Rolls. I picked something up and put it over my waistband basket, picked it up and put it on the other side because I don't want to get caught. Okay? When you're a sneak eater, a sneak drinker, a sneak smoker, they can't get caught. There's rules. You gotta get a lot, get it quick, and don't get caught. And I watched myself do that sober. Okay. I say to my wife, Would you like some yogurt? I go in the kitchen, scoop for her, scoop for me, take a half a scoop bite. Scoop for her, scoop for me. By the time I bring it in, I've had about twice as much, but they both look the same. Okay. I may be the only person in this room that does that, but uh, I'll tell you this, you know, when I was smoking, when I lit up, I smoked all day. And if I, any of us speak too long, it'll make you smokers nervous. But you have got to go out there and get that. I understand that. That's powerful. Anybody that doesn't think it's powerful is on the wrong page. When I took a sip of alcohol after three and a half years, I didn't know what was going to happen. And that bomb went off in my life of alcoholism. And within two years of drunken behavior, I became an embarrassment to that university. And they had to fire me because of my behavior. They couldn't keep me because of my ability. I embarrassed them. And I had stuff happen. All drunks have stuff happening. That may not be what we have in common. If you get a phenomenon of craving like I do when I take a drink, then we got something in common. If like on page 21, the real alcoholics want to can't control the consumption once they take a drink. If you're like that, I lost the ability to stop drinking someplace. Maybe I'd stop once in a while thinking I got a handle on it, but pretty soon I just collapse again. If you're the type that thinks that next time it's going to be different, sitting here today after listening to seven people, maybe tomorrow you'll think, I've got so much knowledge, I heard some, I, I can handle it, I can identify it. And the book says that thought has to be smashed. And I had all of those. I just didn't know it until after I got the treatment. And so I take that drink, 
and I just destroyed everything in my life. They finally had to fire me from my job. And the wife of 15 years, we've gone together since ninth and 10th grade in high school. We weren't rookies together. We've been together and grew up and all that stuff. And the props look good. And I lost that uh, job. And all of a sudden, she's getting nervous, you know. And I got the DWI. And then uh, and I get fired from my job. I get fired from the next job. And then the next thing, I, uh, I end up with a double hit and run. And I wake up in the morning and my car smashed and I don't know how that happened. And you gotta hide your car, you gotta check the paper, check the news, and uh, see what's going on and uh, finally get it fixed and the cops come up and say, you have, you have to have a lawyer. I gotta ask why. He said, well you just hit two families the other day. Hit one, bounced off, hit the other, bounced off, and drove off into the city. Now nobody got hurt. I am thankful for that. You know, something like that ought to stop you from drinking. But a guy like me, that just puts more fear into me. You know, those kind of things never stop me from drinking. My life is getting so much messed up, I need a drink to kind of get those things out and settle them. I react just the opposite. And so uh, the wife finally says, if you ever do it again, and I promise, again, not, you know, not to drink, not to mess up, and I'll be doggone if she was not sunning herself one day, and I thought she should have a drink. Because if she has a drink, she can't tell if I'm drinking. I don't know if that's a scientific uh, study, but it didn't work with me. And so I'm going to get a drink while uh, and she can't tell. And I, I must have misjudged the doses that day. I must have, I must have got the, the strong stuff instead of the watered-down stuff I've been doing. And, uh, and I pass out on my family room couch. When she recognized that, that's the last straw in that case. Everybody's got a breaking point. Some can endure more. Some won't endure at all. And then she calls that lawyer that talked to the judge that sent that deputy out. And uh, then that got all kind of ugly and uh, guns going off and holes blown in the ceiling and uh, and uh, just just ugly stuff. And uh, she's off to the kids someplace and I'm going to protect my homestead. You can't throw me out of here. Oh, yes, they can. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not allowed there unless there's two cops there. And you have to test that. You have to test that. Always after a few drinks. You know, I, I got a long losing streak going, and I don't know it. And so I'm angry at her, and I'm angry at them. I'm angry at God. I'm angry at everything, and I haven't identified the problem. And all I did was just continue to get worse. I ended up in an apartment building, unworkable. You know, I would wake up in the morning. I take the bottle into the bathroom to get uh, to get well, because I got to get unsick. And so I take a drink, and you play the game back and forth. And there's nothing in there anyway, and, uh, you know, because there's been no food in there. So you just rip yourself inside out. This is not, I tell one of my clients, this is not tossing your cookies. We're not throwing up. I mean, you're in there on your hands and knees, you're heading that bowl, and you're just ripping your insides, and you know, yellow pieces and red pieces and green pieces coming out. This is not what you call, you know, just uh, having fun, just kind of getting over a weekend. Say, hey, this is major stuff. My gut's out to here. My eyes are all squinty. My skin's yellow. I got the shakes. I want to tell you something. You take enough drinks, quit getting sick, get enough down there, and pretty soon I stop shaking. Pretty soon I don't care what I look like or what I smell like because I took care of what was wrong. And I have this theory, anybody that drinks in the bathroom has got a problem. Right? That's not social drinking. Right? <laughs> I remember one time I was substitute teaching. I had that junior high school uh, class over there, and uh, at a 10 o'clock in the morning, I had a dash out to my I had a little Maverick at the time. It was a residential section. I get myself in that Maverick. I get under that front seat, get that bottle out of there, and I'm taking a drink underneath the dashboard, and I to hide my body and get that drink, and get back in there and take that next class. And that strikes me. That's not social drinking. 
A lot of people don't go to those efforts. I'm going to tell you something that was necessary. See, that's necessary drinking. That's different. I've got to have that so I can get through the next two hours. So I can take the lunch break that will get me through till the thing is over and I can stop. And, I mean, that, and I never, I never looked at that as a problem. It just got complicated sometimes and you just had to work it out. And then you get caught and then the timing's off and all that stuff. And, uh, and my world wasn't going well. See, I couldn't get my brain to stop. If I could get enough booze in there to make it stop, I'd be okay. Put it in neutral. But it wouldn't work. Pretty soon the brain rushes forward. I see no future. I get suicide. My brain rushes in the past. I look at all those people that did me in. Then I get homicide. And I don't deal well with either one of those, so I take another drink. Just put me in neutral, say. It's like taking your car, put the key in the ignition, start the engine, put the car in park, and let it just kind of idle. That's all I wanted. Then I'd be sitting there and the phone would ring. I'm by myself. And I'm sitting there, and this is before, you know, call and all that stuff. And the thing rings, and it's like having a heart attack. And the, the heart starts to pound, the blood starts to flush, it starts to break off the sweat. You wonder who that is, what do they want, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you're afraid to pick it up. You ever, you ever sneak up on your mail? Yeah. You know, in apartment buildings, they have those little mailboxes, and they go in and you kind of look at that. Is there anything legal in there? Any lawyers? Any, you know. Uh, I had this theory, if you don't open it, you're not responsible. I found out that wasn't correct either, especially if they date it. Uh, I almost missed my divorce case, you know. And, uh, but I, I, I showed up, surprised them. Ended up with five uh, deputies and both hands behind my back. I think it was something I said. Uh, I can't remember all those details, but, uh, but you know, that, you see, my life wasn't going well. I gave booze everything I had. I gave it that career, and I gave it that wife. I gave it that family. I gave it the neighbors. I, I gave it my uh, uh, the physical. I gave it the mental. I, you know, I, I spent a couple of weeks in the mental work. I gave it the emotional. I gave my soul to booze and never identified it as a problem. People would say, how dumb can you get with a bottle in my hand and, a, and booze in my body? I can get real, real unsmart. That I had to have to make it okay. Then my life changed. That's what it used to be like in the general way. And my life changed through a set of circumstances that had nothing to do with me. I was given the gift of sobriety. I totally and completely believed that. Something greater than myself. For whatever the timing was, the circumstances were, all of a sudden, I guess it was my turn to get sober. I didn't ask for it. I didn't volunteer for it. It just happened. I had a lady at one person in my life. I don't need those. I had one lady in my life come knocking on my door one day. Now, does it normally come? Did that day. Go and check up. Doesn't hardly ever bring the newspaper, but did that day? She leaves, I have my drink, I'm getting unsick, and, uh, and I look at the sports section. That's the section I look at. And you know, that day in that Madison paper was a picture. The picture on the inside page caught my eye. You know, I'm already under the influence. And it was a picture of the uh, fella who was the first black pitcher for the Brooklyn Dodgers way back in the 50s when I was a kid, and they used to talk about it. I mean, he was, a, he was well known. His picture drew my attention. The story was about his alcoholism. And he had lost his family and World Series rings. And over here he's better today. And he had a boxed-in section, as I remember, that says, if you've got a problem, call this number. That was on the sports section that day. 
the only time in the history of that paper that that story ran. Of the thousands or hundreds of thousands of copies and stories and messages and all, only that day, and that's the day somebody stopped by and gave me the paper in the sports section so I could find it. could have been the headlines in the front page. I'd have missed it. And for some reason, I'm not sure what, I went ahead and called. I dialed that number. It was in New York someplace. I'm in Wisconsin. I don't remember the conversation. I just say I babbled and cried. And somebody says, sounds like you've got a problem. You should call somebody local. And then the next miracle or coincidence came up. Three years prior to that, I had been at a golf outing. And I came in and had a few drinks, and, you know, I had the job and the props and the wife and all that stuff. And a friend of mine introduced me to a guy. And he says, Larry, I want you to meet Ryan. And as soon as he mentioned his name, I could pull out his baseball card mentally and tell you that he used to be with the Yankees. He used to have Coke bottle thick glasses. They always talked about his first warm-up pitch would be wildly in the screams. And the batters, they didn't know whether he was faking or whether he was on and on. And, you know, that was never mentioned. My friend Tom said, Larry, this is Ryan. He is the director of an alcohol rehabilitation center in Stoughton, Wisconsin. That seed was planted in my head. Three years later, having never thought of him again, when somebody in New York says, call somebody local, his name, position, location, I was sitting by the phone, I looked in the yellow pages, and I dialed that number, and they seemed to be glad to hear from me. And that lady said, well, Ryan's not here, but would you talk to somebody else? I said, well, yeah. He said, okay, we'll have a guy call you. I didn't know it was a 12-step call. And a guy called me by the name of Bill W., a World War II fighter pilot. said, can I come over to visit? He took time out of his life after he got that call to come and visit a total stranger, having no idea what he was going to find. And I hadn't had company for so long, and, I, and he came over to my place, and you know what he did. He shared his story with me. Now, I don't have the faintest idea what he's talking about, but on November 11th, 1975, approximately 10 o'clock in the morning, uh, he picked me up and took me to Stoughton, and I haven't had a drink to this day. And he took me down there, and they put me in, and uh, Ryan talked to me and shared stories. And, uh, and what they said down there is, you know, you're addicted to the liquid drug alcohol. That's what helped Ryan. That's what they shared with us. You put that alcohol inside of you, it controls you. You don't control it. You're no different than a junkie on the street. And I never questioned anything that they did. If they said it, it was truth and gospel. It's the first time I ever heard alcoholics talk about themselves. And they shared stuff that I'd keep secret. You know, you know, like I say, we'll be as sick as we are secret. You've got to get those secrets out of there so we can get unsick. I'm a stuffer. I don't want anybody to know those things. And uh, and all of a sudden, they talked about getting honest and being responsible and quit blaming other people. And uh, and I sat in that coffee shop one night, 2 o'clock in the morning, when all of a sudden it hit me what they were talking about. And I did one of those first inventories, you know, like some of the stuff I just shared with you, especially that one about not drinking and taking a sip and my life going to hell right immediately. And I had a cup of coffee and a cup like this, and I looked at that, and I, and I, I did my inventory, and I saw the trouble and alcohol and alcohol and the difficulties, and it all came together. All of a sudden, I knew what was wrong. Alcohol, alcoholism. I got it. Once you got it, you can't get rid of it. ISM, illness, sickness, malady. The book talks about that. First time I saw the word malady, I didn't know what that was. I thought it said malady for crying out loud. I thought, what is a malady? I had to go look it up. It said sickness and illness. Oh, and that's what I had. 
All of a sudden it was identified. I got excited. I found out what was wrong, and then I found out who was wrong, and it was me, because I'm the one that made the choices to drink it. They said, quit blaming other people for your actions. And I let them go. And I had that cup of coffee, and I looked at that coffee. I imagined it as booze, and I said, there's no brain, there's no heart, there's no feelings in that chemical. And when I drink it, I become like it. I become brainless because I do dumb things. I'm, I'm heartless because if you care about me, I'll hurt you. I'm feeling this because I'm going to hurt you again and again. And I put the cup on the, on the floor and I stood over that cup and I'm a monster compared to that cup. And in my world, I'm saying anybody as big and this strong and this, I should be able to whip anything that small. I could crush it and beat it. And then yet every time I took it up, and you know, one time I took a, I took a sip and it whipped me. I guess Muhammad Ali would say that. You know, float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. I guess that's what it did to me. Took me out, bam, just like that. And I identified. Wow. And the other thing I knew is they had the answer. What to do about it. And what to do about it was this program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And when it came time to leave there, they said, Larry, here's a list of meetings. If you're going to continue what you've gotten started, you need to go to the meeting." And my life went from the darkest moment of my life, like I got a dimmer switch, and when I left there 30 days later, nothing changed on the outside. And I was excited about it. I had turned my will and my life over the care of God when I was there through some prayer and some communication with God. Ryan told me, you know, prayer is just communicating with God, using your own language, knowing the, uh, the meaning of it, and talking from your heart like you would to a dear friend. And he'll hear you. And I did that one night. And I said, I'm sorry for this, I'm sorry for that. And the thing that was different is I like to do it your way. I turned my will and life over to care of God that day, and I've been doing it ever since. If I was turning me over to me, I'd turn me down some days, because I know what I'm dealing with. But God, in my understanding, doesn't do that. And so I came out, and I started to go to meetings, and I started to meet people, and things happened. I thought I was going to end up in a prison job in Vandalia, Illinois. They offered me a job. But in between there, making amends and doing the stuff they talk about, trying to clear away the wreckage of the past, a friend of mine I had visited with came into Bria, Ohio, and saw a former boss of mine, and they had a job opening. And he recommended me back into the profession I had been in before that I loved, and he said, you know, Larry's had his troubles, his drinking and his divorce, and they said, yeah, we heard. He said, but it seems like he's doing better and really, you know, trying to get it together. I interviewed, they offered me a job. They took a chance on me uh, six months sober. They took a chance on me because they knew I was recovering when I came in. And here it is, those 20-some, you know, 25-plus years later, I'm, I'm still there. The people are recommending me, the people are hiring me, they're gone. I don't have an answer for that. That's just the way it is. And so all of a sudden I said to my boss one day, I said, Lee, uh, whose son now is the head coach at Ohio State, I said, you know, there's something missing in my life. i got to get to the meetings. And he said, Larry, you do whatever you have to do. And I called that central office, I got that meeting, guys, and I started going to meetings in Cleveland, Ohio area. I don't know how many meetings is good for you. I only know this, that the more I go to, the more involvement I have had, it just seems I think better, I respond better, I act better, I don't make as many errors of judgment and deeds and thoughts. It just has filled my life. I have gotten excited about the program Alcoholics Anonymous. I've got excited about living. Each day is a new adventure. Let's know. Let's get out. Let's get after it. Let's, have, let's see what's going to go today. You go to work every day with a smile on your face because every day is different. I don't know exactly what God's got planned. And he's got some neat stuff out there. And there's some of that other stuff that goes along with that, say. But uh, uh, 
I just, I got going and so I went around that city and I heard things. You know, if you go to enough meetings, you will hear things. Things like, do you have a home group? I didn't know what that was. I sat in a discussion. They discussed it one time. Then I knew what it was. And Berea Friday at the time was my best combination of days and work and all that. And so that became my first home group. And, uh, and I understand about a home group and make a commitment to the home group and be there if at all possible. We were talking last night. Every day you're out. If at all possible, I'm in my home group. Those guys over there, i got to sign a slip so they can go back to Strongsville and verify that they were down here. Okay? Because they don't, maybe I know that thing. But, you know, that's a commitment. And, and you are there if at all possible. And then you get to know people and they get to know you and, and you see your flaws and you get their strengths and they can read you and how you're doing. And I just, I, I, I had no idea it would be like this. And the friends and the friendships and the, and the, and the adventures of, of recovery. And, uh, and there's a lot of stuff to do in a home group. A lot of ways we can uh, help. Like uh, Chuck and I were talking, and he can, he said he likes to do the coffee, and he does this, he does that, some of the stuff, and maybe not up here he's not as comfortable with, and others up here we'll go ahead and just, you know, shoot, so we're more comfortable, we'll do that, that. There's a lot of stuff to do. And I asked the question, am I contributing? Am I participating in the group? Participating might be listening well. Participating, meeting a new guy. Participating, cleaning up, setting up, you know, do the check, do the check. I mean, there's lots of stuff to do. There are so many tools available to us in recovery. The question is, will I use them? And uh, and I just find that uh, in my life, uh, I get I get excited about that and been involved with a lot of stuff. And then they talked about having that sponsor. A sponsor was a person, a single person that you make a commitment to that you can tell him anything, and I don't have to say, listen, uh, don't tell anybody. We already have that understanding, and uh, and I've had to do that on occasion that real deep, heavy stuff, and go to that. And my sponsors, I had a, a one earlier, uh, Harold Jacobson has, has uh, die, uh, died, and, uh, and uh, I had Eddie as soon as uh, we buried Harold, but uh, I've had two. And I had that commitment to them, and they uh, never let me down. They always share with me exactly what they think. And so, you know, my life has just developed from that. And, uh, and those other things, I believe that the pieces of life will come together in sobriety. They may not be all the same pieces we used to have. And uh, my ex-wife and I, we never got together, uh, uh, to, except for, uh, uh, you know, friendship and dealing with the kids and things like that. And you keep going in life, and you will be put in a certain situation. And I look back on that. We had three children. Two of those went to treatment. My son's got about 12 years in the program now. And uh, and the one little girl that come and live with her daddy as a single parent, she went everywhere with me in AA. And she's the one that didn't have a problem. And uh, and she's got her kids and her family now as they've gotten older. And so there were graduations, and there was... Uh, 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 weddings and there were births and there's grandchildren and uh, and I met a lady in the program and uh, and we courted in the program uh, with real kind of strict guidelines and uh, and uh, one night after we'd been going together for probably a year year and a half or something like that uh, I asked her if I could kiss her good night and she said I could and uh, later she asked me what took you so long and uh, I'm sorry, my understanding was sobriety first. You get a recovery, you got, uh, you know, you bring one sick person, one healthy, pretty soon you got two sick. And the idea was recovery. Her sponsor used to tell her, you come to meetings, those guys are coming over. He says, you stick your hand right in their sternum. Okay. You say to them, you know, when did you have your last drink or drug? Not how long you've been in the program. That's got multiple answers. You know. And who's your sponsor? What's your home group? If they can't answer that, she said, don't talk to them. <laughs> That's the way it was. Okay? And so uh, 
you know, we, we, we started with that. Then we courted and we were married and uh, a very, very active uh, AA, two, two people. And uh, had a guy I was sponsoring one time. He came over and he was having troubles with his lady friend. And he said, I came to you because I know you and Marilyn, you're both in the program. Everything's got to be wonderful. I said, you got to be kidding. We just had World War III in the kitchen here this morning. We weren't speaking. I said, Marilyn, come in and talk to this guy. Tell him we're not speaking. That's what got us back together that day. I used to tell people, we keep the lawyer's name by the phone so we don't have to look for the number for crying out loud. You got two personalities that are going in a program, two independent people, and uh, and my kids and families and my ex-wife calling, and Marilyn has to talk to you. Why do I have to talk to your ex-wife? It's because you were home. I mean, it's like a 12-step call. It always was. Okay? So, uh, and we and we and we drew together. When my youngest daughter got married up in Madison, Wisconsin, Marilyn and I and my dad went up there, and we met at that reception hall. And we went in that reception hall. My first wife and her mother were there, and uh, and the lady that was in my life at the end of the first marriage and the start of the sobriety, she was there. The one knocked on my door with that paper. And then here was my current wife, and we all came in, and uh, and I got hugs from all of them. And that's why you do amends. So when those things come together, you've already cleared up the wreckage of the past. And that other family sits over there, and they don't have a program, and they look at you and say, how can you do that? How can all those exes intermingle and, and uh, crisscross, and my kids with this one, and my kids with that one, and my dad here, and this lady here, and that, and that, uh, you know, that uh, happened to be part of our life, but because of recovery, those things are possible. And then you have some of the, uh, you know, the difficult times, like uh, uh, my sponsor died of cancer, my mom died of cancer, and then my wife at uh, 46 uh, had her bout with cancer, and cancer took her. And it took about two and a half years, but I'll tell you something, she was something. She out there, some of the ladies know her, she's out there, she says, I'm in the process of living, I'm not in the process of dying. And she fought that, used this program, and uh, as she got uh, larger, she just bought bigger clothes and, and brighter clothes. And when she needed a cane, she was a, a redhead by choice, she decided that she wanted to have a bronze cane, because it'd go with her outfits. And then when she had to have a walker, she got a bronze walker. And when we got a wheelchair, if they made bronze wheelchair, we'd have had that. And our doors were open. I used to take the bathroom door off the hinges because it's hard to get that wheelchair in there. And I told a lot of people, if uh, you take some of the doors down in your house, it's amazing what can happen with a relationship. And you'll come to my house, I can leave the door open with the door closed. I don't care. But that's your choice. And the, and the program and the a decent, loving people just, you know, just swarmed around us. It was, uh, uh, and then after she was gone, you know, it, uh, uh, I look back on that and there were so many beautiful things that took place. And then all of a sudden it's somebody else's turn. And so those that are done for us, now we're supposed to go and do for others. And so we go to a lot of funerals, we go to a lot of hospitals, we do a lot of stuff like that because that's, that's the way it is. It's, uh, everybody gets a turn. You stay sober long enough, you'll get a turn of the good stuff and some of the sour stuff. And then, uh, and we try to share that and uh, share the load and, and we have a process to follow. And so there's been many, many beautiful things in, uh, in my life. And, uh, and I take a look at that. You know, all I have to do, if you just check your, your personal self today, just see how I'm doing. How am I doing today? And, uh, and I went back to a high school reunion when I was a widower, and I met a lady there, and we courted, and we married, and Barb and I have been married for 10 years. And she's been a, she never knew anything about AA before. Now she goes here and goes there and does things like that and led the choir over at uh, Cedar Lake last week. And, uh, and so we've come together, and all of a sudden I, I take a look, and I, you know, I got a wedding ring today, and there's a lady in my life. I found romance at 50-some years old. Didn't know that could happen, but fell in love again. And over here I have a, a national championship ring with a thing that I do that said at that year we were the best in the country. And my past wife gave me that. 
And if I look at my, I got my car keys in here, I got a decent car out there that doesn't have four snow tires on it with the studs in the back like my other one used to do with the white thread going through. And it doesn't have any bumps right now. Okay? And I got a driver's license that doesn't have many points on it. I didn't say it didn't have any points, it just doesn't have many points, okay? And, uh, and I've got an insurance policy that covers me every place. When I was in Madison, Wisconsin, they covered me about 700 feet either side of the car. I mean, I was somewhat limited after that double hit and run. And, uh, and I've got an ID card in here for, uh, for a, uh, ATM machine. You know, you current guys, that's something. You know, you can get out, get that money out of that machine and get, get drunk all the time. I, I didn't have that advantage. I didn't know how to write a check when I, and, uh, and, uh, and, and that's okay. And I've got uh, an ID card for work. I've had a job. I've been on a job long enough to maybe retire. Isn't that something? Okay? And I carry in my left pocket, I carry my nitro in here because I've been sober long enough to get unhealthy. And so sometimes you, you know, you got it. And, uh, and I tell the kids in my class, my nitro's in the left pocket. If I go down right now, I said, reach in that pocket, throw a few of those in my mouth. Maybe you'll save me. And if you do, it'll help your grades. I'm, I'm willing to pay back. Yeah. yeah, we'll give, we'll pay. I don't have any, I don't have any big secrets. You want to know how I'm doing? Ask me, and I'll, I'll let you know. And uh, and I, and I look at this. I, so many blessings. And I don't think we have to, you know, do big inventory. Just look where you're sitting. Look who's with you. Who you care about. Who makes the calls. You know what's on your body today. And I've got a lot of evidence that, uh, that my life's not doing too bad. And it all started with a sobriety card. Okay. Without it, all I got is trouble. I got a sobriety date that doesn't float. It stays and try to build from that. Ups and downs that go with that. And then uh, I just like to kind of finish with you. And uh, Todd, I'm going to ask you to help me here. Um, I was in Florida one time. An old timer recognized me as a new person, and they uh, uh, took uh, um, some time to talk with me. And after the meeting, he came in and he did something for me that made tremendous sense to me. And I've tried to share it many times. And what he said to me was, and he took a, a cup of coffee. And he, uh, and he put it on the desk. And he said, you know, kid, if you put the 12 steps in your life, you won't have to pick up a drink if something good or bad happens to you. And what he did is he got right next to that table. And he took a little baby step back. He says, you're only an arm's length away from a drink. Put two steps in your life, even three. And he did that little baby step thing. He says, and something good or bad happens, you take a drink. That's what we've been doing all these years. And Todd, if you'd pace off 12 steps here, would you, right from that table? Big steps like you're a referee at the ball game, right from there, stretch it on out there. And this guy did 12 steps across that club like Todd's doing right now. And he went across there, and now he's talking to me, and I'm standing here, see? And he said, kid, if you put the 12 steps of your of this program in your life, and something good or bad happens, he says, you won't take a drink. you got to take those steps out of this. And I'm looking at that, and that made sense to me. I want to get a barrier between me and that drink. And I got to thinking, if I get 12 steps in there, and I get uh, 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 a sobriety date that doesn't change, I get a higher power in here, I get a home group in here, I get a uh, uh, sponsor in here, I get that big book, 164 pages and some stories, I got 12 steps, 12 traditions, 12 promises, 4 absolutes, I've got uh, uh, the uh, Miami Valley Conference in there, I've got that Cedar Lakes Conference, I've been to the Founders Day, I've been to the International, I've been down to the Jailhouse, I've been to Mansfield Prison, I've been to Medina Jailhouse, I've been to Stella Maris, I've been to the Freedom House, I've been to the Inner City, etc., etc., etc. I read the 12 and 12. I read the 24-hour book. I read the good book. I have got so many tools to put between me and a, and a drink. All of a sudden, I got a barrier. 
So that when mom goes, or the wife goes, or the job goes, or this goes, I haven't had to take a drink. And when the beautiful stuff happens, and the honors and stuff like that, I don't have to take a drink. When we won a national championship, we got on a plane in Alabama, we're from Atlanta, and we're driving, uh, flying back to Cleveland, and I'm sitting there, and I, there's one, I'm the last guy on the plane, there's one seat left. And everybody's been drinking after that game and celebrating, and I sat down to the only other person on that plane that didn't drink. Like I had a reserved seat. They waiting for me, and I didn't have to drink. We stayed in there one time in the locker room when we won a championship, and they're pouring a, a, a champagne or cold duck over my head, coming down here around my nose, and I can tell you I didn't even stick my tongue out for a little quickie in there. <laughs> I had a sip whip me one time. I don't want another sip. And when that guy said, 12 steps, Todd, you get tired? Get over there. 12 steps. <laughs> You got 12 steps and you got all those things that happen and meetings and, you know, just add your own. And beautiful people in your life. When something happens, don't have to take a drink. And I've heard of people who had a whole lot more tragedies than I've experienced. And they didn't take a drink. And some guys that had some beautiful things happen and they haven't had to take a drink. Wow. I don't know about you, but I didn't have that in my life. I had some wonderful people and parents and loved ones in my life, but, but there's nothing like that. Thanks, Doc. And so what I try to do is I try to say thank you today. I try to tell God, or the God of my understanding, I say, uh, you know, I want to uh, uh, thank you for being alive and being sober, and I hope I'm useful to you today uh, as you direct. I turn my will and my life over to the care of God because one day I found out that He cared for me when I didn't care for myself. He cared for me when I didn't deserve to be cared for. Or else why am I here? And all of a sudden, I ask him if he'll help me to take that personal inventory, continue to take that inventory, and when I'm wrong, that I will recognize it, that I will admit it, that I will correct it, and I will amend it. So I will be a better service to him. And then I try to go into, uh, 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 I, I pray for the knowledge of his will for me, the knowledge of his will for me today, and the power to carry out that knowledge, because lack of power is my dilemma. I cannot do it on my own. Uh, we want to team up. I ask you, come into my life. What is his knowledge? That if I can be more loving, I can be more uh, honest and selfish and pure in the thoughts and the words and the deeds of my day. I think I'm heading in the right direction. Please help me. And then I say thank you for that spiritual awakening. Thank you for the spiritual experience. Thank you for the personality change in Appendix 2 that has uh, uh, allowed this, uh, uh, sobriety to take place. I thank him for the steps and the, pers- and, the, and the people and the fellowship and the home groups and the sponsor that were divinely given as I see it. And I try to carry that message, I, uh, if at all possible, to others whenever the opportunity presents itself. And I try to practice the principles in all my affairs. The principle was to love God, love self, and love others. That's what I see our steps about. And sometimes I fall short on that. And so I try to pray for others, the sick and the suffering and the, and the dying and the successful, that they will be able to... And I add names to that. And then I like to finish up by thanking Him for helping those of us that couldn't help ourselves. He saved me from myself. He saved me from the worldly ways. He saved us from, uh, from the booze, the addictions, the behavior, the sickness. He saved others from us because some of them had to leave us so we couldn't hurt them anymore. He guided us to where the answer was where I found sobriety and I found a new way to live a day at a time. He allowed us to clear away the wreckage of the past and put us on a path that we can trudge of happy destiny. I thank Him for what was and what is and what will be. And I try to do that on a daily basis. 
And since doing that and not taking a drink and being with you in this program, I have never known a, an adventure of life that's been so exciting. I would have shortchanged it. And you have allowed it to blossom and just continue to grow. And being here today, being the leadoff guy, trying to get the thing started is very, very important to me. And, uh, and I thank you for that opportunity.